Hey folks, I'm Dawn Sam Alden. And I'm Sean Marlon Newcomb, and you're not. So we want you to help us <laughs> disrupt history. <laughs> you hear what I have to work with, people. Action. Hey everybody, I'm Dawn Sam Alden. And I'm Sean Marlon Newcomb, and we want you to help us disrupt history. And make matriarchy great again, again, again. I was hoping to hear the echo. So happy now. We have so many great shows coming up on Women Warriors, The Feminine Divine, The War Against the Goddess, all coming your way. And a new YouTube channel so you can see the stories of these great women as well as hear them. And for all that, we would love your support. If you can, please visit our Patreon page for 34 Circe Media to make a recurring donation or reach out to us. Yes, I'm on radio. Or reach out to us at info at 34circe.com. That's info at 34circe.com to arrange a one-time donation. What she said. So thank you all for listening. And now on with the show, show, show. My own echo. Welcome to the 34 Circes. Welcome to Make Matriarchy Great Again. And welcome, everyone, to the 34 Circe Salon, Make Matriarchy Great Again. We've got the band back together. I am Sean Marlon Newcomb. I am John Sam Alden, and we have with us the fabulous... <laughs> Vicky Noble. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> <Yay>, we're back. <laughs> All right, so what are we're going to take a deep dive today? And uh, there was a great symposium and keynote speech back in was it August, Vicky? Is it that long ago that this this took July? Place? July. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And we've wow. been talking about me doing a kind of report on that symposium ever since. Right. So, here, here, here we begin today. Wonderful. Well, we are. I have buckled my seatbelt. And I cannot wait to go on this ride with you. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. You know, the, the symposium itself is all recorded, and the recordings are up for a year uh, till next July. But um, Where can people find it for those recordings? No, they haven't figured out yet, or they haven't put it up on the website yet, how, to, you know, how people who didn't register uh, can access those recordings. Okay. So I just okay. want to put that out. I, I, it, it, when it comes time that they figure out how people can pay for it or do something and access in some way, then we'll talk about that. that what's, the site, what's the site anyway, just so if people want to just look at? Uh, it's ASWM, uh, okay. A-S-W-M. It's the Association for the Study of Women and Mythology. And they have a special... They have a definitely a special page on the symposium. It might even be a website, but I think it's just a page. I joined. Okay, I'll take a look over there too. So. Yeah, everybody right. should join. You know, it's a wonderful mm -hmm. organization with no kind of uh, link to an academy of any kind. So there's no funding, and they do everything as volunteers and from the money that comes in for uh, products, basically, you know, the different... Uh, conferences and so on right right okay nice nice so there was a conference in july uh just kind of maybe give us some background on that and then just go into your deep dive and i can't wait to hear <laughs> well it was a symposium to honor the archaeologist maria gimbutas i think we've talked about her enough on these podcasts that hopefully you have a sense of who that is uh it was the centennial this year of her birth. And so there were uh, numerous uh, awards and honors uh, regarding her. And this symposium 
was created by the women at Aswim and uh, in conjunction with Joan Marler, who was Maria Giambudis's kind of right-hand person and protege at the end of her life. Right, right. And not only celebrating her life, but also looking at, um, you know, the, the uh, directions that her work have, yes. you know, has continued to travel since her passing. Yes, exactly. And the many, many scholars and independent researchers and women in women's spirituality and so on, how, how many have been not only impacted by her work and her life, but have taken the work in new directions, you know, and have, right. uh, have disseminated the work to some extent. And so that's what the conference was really honoring. And so there were lots of uh, lots of different women artists and uh, writers and uh, choreographers and you know all kind of ritualists who who have been impacted and loved her and want to carry on her work want to see that her work is carried on and not erased. Right. Oh, that sounds fabulous. Yeah, it was a thrill. You know, I, I like conferences in general. Sometimes they're so full that it's sort of like a lot of talking heads and, you know, we don't take walks or anything. We're usually in buildings. But right. this was on Zoom and it was one person at a time. And it was lovely. It was three days of really, really marvelous uh, talks and lots of juried artwork and uh, musical presentations and you know it's just it was great oh. and panels panels of people talking about that kind of work not just archaeology nice nice and the thing that i really wanted to talk about today is the keynote address given at the very beginning the very opening uh, <clears throat> by joan marler she called it uh Remembering a Great Woman of Science, the Life and Legacy of Archaeologist Maria Gimbutas. Nice. And it was, you know, it was designed to introduce Maria to any of us who might not know her and to especially to introduce us to her cultural background. Uh, she, was, she was born in Lithuania. And one of the things Joan point, pointed out was that Lithuania was one of the last countries to be Christianized. Uh, and the, the Balts, near the Baltic Sea, the countries near the Baltic Sea, worshipped Mother Earth uh, and, and, you know, didn't, weren't really interested in giving that up. And I, I had just heard that, interestingly enough. They had something on, I guess, the Poland-Lithuania Republic. Oh, uh, so it was uh, it was a really interesting piece on a, another podcast, which I highly recommend, called "In Our Time" from by the BBC, um, oh. and they did something on the Poland-Lithuania Commonwealth, which I didn't even know existed, but it was this huge republic that had existed in Europe um, for a couple of centuries, and it's just really? really interesting. Yeah, I'll, well, we can talk about that all three of us uh, uh -huh. another yeah. time, but. Uh, but yeah, they mentioned that Lithuania was the one of the last countries to be Christianized. Yeah, well, that's, you know, for our purposes, that's terribly interesting because they weren't Christianized until the 14th century. And even then, uh, it was very slowly adopted. She Maria wrote a whole book on the Balts. That was one of her first works. Um, and and to but to go back to her beginnings, the uh, her mother and sister were got medical diplomas. They were doctors. Now, you, you know, Maria's born, uh, gosh, of all the things I wrote down, I didn't write down her birth, but... Uh, well, it was 100 years ago. Exactly, so it's so. 1921. Yeah, there, 1921. There you go. <laughs> was born in 1921. How intelligent of you, Don. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, in, uh, in her early life, her, her mother and... I guess her, not her mother and her sister, but her mother and her mother's sister had uh, gotten medical diplomas. And they, uh, they actually, at a certain point, created a hospital. I think in uh, 1918, they established the first Lithuanian hospital. And it, and it was terribly unusual for women at that time to have medical degrees. Can you imagine? I mean, a lot of women probably didn't even have 
college. But anyway, her mother and her mother's sister were absolutely vibrant intellectuals and part of a uh, part of a whole class of intelligentsia of people who were actually close to the land, but in this intellectual uh, kind of collaboration. Um, so I, I love that. I, I, I perked up when Joan started talking about that because it was part of what made Maria so interesting is that she had such a big brain and was such an incredible uh, intellectual uh, giant, but at the same time, she was so close to the earth, and and growing up in Lithuania uh, kept her close to the earth. Vicky, um, uh, what do we know? Uh, what do you know about the the culture then? So, if it wasn't that common for women to be educated, even, and that's a region which you know you've mentioned that has we we can connect the history of these old Europe matriarchies in that area. What though in the present day was it, is it a more patriarchal culture in her time when she was being she's raised? Were there still strong currents for women then, or was it just so unusual all around as you were mentioning? Besides the fact of her getting an education, but for women to be in kind of more assertive positions. Well, I'm not sure about women in general during that period. I don't imagine that they were. Like I say, I doubt that they were going to college much and stuff like that, because generally in the, in the early part of the century, that wasn't happening. Um, but her, her family was so unusual. Her, uh, and that's one of the things I think has made her really unique. Her, her, they were, first of all, they were occupied. They were occupied all the time by everybody. They were occupied by Tsarist Russia. Um, and that, she, Joan said in her talk that that's what stimulated this vibrant class of uh, people close to the land who were really, really smart and talking about things. And they also respected and preserved the folklore and the language. You know how so many people try to protect and preserve the language of their territory because uh, it's, if it slips away, the whole culture slips away. And uh, Lithuanian is one of the most archaic languages, uh, Indo-European Indo languages. It's similar to Sanskrit. And so that's, that's an important aspect. And then uh, education and language, using their own language, that was illegal under the czar. And her, wow. Yeah, yeah. Try to picture, you know, it's such a radical... Well, it's, it's, you know, it's, 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 uh, ha definitely has echoes yeah. in American history where the indigenous peoples were not allowed to speak their own languages. And yes, were, exactly. You know, well, exactly. And they, did, and they yeah. did that with, uh, uh, people who were brought here from Africa. They were, all of the culture and language was broken. It was one of the first things that was done. Well, it's, one of, the most the effective, yeah. it's yeah. one of the most effective ways to obliterate a culture. Exactly. Right. And yeah. literate connection, because it's a connection. I, I think I told Dawn, I told you this story once. It, I was standing at, at in college at the information desk, and a friend of mine was standing with me, and some people were speaking Spanish behind him. And he got just frightened because he thought they were plotting a coup. It was the weirdest thing I'd ever seen. But it just oh. shows you what language means to some people. And if you're a colonial, the idea that you don't know what the people you're oppressing are saying is a problem for you. So, yeah, break the language. Well, her parents during this period of Tsarist Russia occupying Lithuania, her parents were book carriers. Book carriers, that's a thing. <laughs> it's like a part of the resistance movements, you know. And uh, her parents were doctors, and they were book carriers, and they were they had this clandestine lifestyle. Um, and at the same time, they established the first Lithuanian hospital, um, and then uh, and then in 1918, they were Lithuania was occupied by Poland for two decades, and her father was the head of the Lithuanian resistance. I mean, we're talking about a almost a cult figure, you know, it wow. was, their household was the epicenter of Lithuanian intelligence. That's what Joan said in her talk. I was so struck by that. 
What a context for Maria to come into this world, you know? Right, right. She was born January 23rd, 1921, and uh, her mother took her to the sea and dipped her. (laughs) <laughs> if you want to know how much of the old religion was still active. Wow. Wow. Oh, that's wonderful. Isn't that gorgeous? And yeah. then Joan talked about her, how she listened to traditional songs of the old women. And I, I knew something of that. You know, I've, I've written about that and I've uh, noticed that about Maria's life. But I didn't understand the ways in which it happened. And one of the stories Joan told was about the hospital. And in the hospital basement is where the old women were doing their thing. And they were always singing while they were preparing the food or doing the laundry or whatever they were doing. And she would go down and listen to them. And uh, and she fell in love with the ancient... Uh, stories and the ancient songs. And I've said before, you know, she collected uh, folk songs when she was a teenager, like thousands. Um, right. And uh, so when she was 10, her mother moved with the children. Uh, and in 1936, her father died. And that put her into a, a really bad depression. Um so as a teen, when she was collecting these songs and stories, uh, in her late teens, she met her future husband. Uh, and he, they were both already fluent in languages. They had studied linguistics. Another big difference in American education and European education. Right. They were both polyglots. Uh, yeah. Amazing. And, and that's before they were even grown up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So they were wonderful collaborators, and, uh, and, they, and, and they wrote uh, together. Um, in 1939, Vilnius was liberated, and she enrolled in the university in Vilnius. And in 1940, with her fiancé, she wrote the lyrics of the dinos, the songs of the old women. So 1939, how old is she? She's born in 21, 31. She's, th- she's 18, you know, and she's already doing a major work that would uh, support her later life work. Amazing. Then the Soviets invaded. <laughs> I mean, they hardly had a break. They really them. didn't, yeah. So, yeah, so she goes from after, after another. World War II, then, yeah, then the Soviet. Yeah, 1940, yeah. around there. So she, the Lithuanians were being deported to Siberia, a lot of the children, apparently. And, and, then, and then there was a German occupation, and the, the Lithuania had the largest population of Jews, which I didn't know until I heard Joan talk about it. In, in Lithuania, they were systematically destroyed. And so her family hid Jewish colleagues. And they, they, hid her, they had to hide her husband. She had married by then and had her first child. Um, she had published by that time more than 20 scholarly articles. Um, and then, so they're under German occupation, and then the Soviets returned. And so... Uh, she and her husband and child fled to Vienna and beyond, and she was still working on her dissertation at that time. And they hid in a parish house and got their doctorates. Isn't that amazing? That she is was amazing. She was in hiding, and they practiced their English. They knew they wanted to come to the States, I think. Uh, so at Tübingen, Tübingen, Tübingen University. Tübingen, yeah. Tübingen, in. <laughs> the, uh, apparently, they were the first, or she was the first, to enroll after the war, and she got her doctoral in prehistory. Wow. And she uh, had her second daughter during that period as well, just in case you think you can't do it all. Right? My goodness. With everything else that was going on, you know, she's having a family, she's getting a doctorate. My heavens. Yeah, so that was 1946. She got her doctoral. And in 1949, they got sponsored to come to the U.S. 
Harvard, I think, sponsored them. And she was given a, you know, a room, an office at Harvard, no salary, but she could do translations and she could write books. And uh, in, in the mid, in the next decade, sometime in the next decade, I think about five years later, uh, she received the Peabody Research Honor, which is amazing at her age, um, and for an immigrant. Um, and she had her third daughter. So at that time, she wrote The Prehistory of Europe. Uh, so, you know, I had always had the sense that she had done all this Bronze Age uh, research and written all these books on the Bronze Age by the time I met her. And I, I assumed, I guess, uh, in my ignorance that she didn't, you know, hadn't been uh, in, interested or focused on prehistory before that, but that's not true. Uh, I, I learned from Joan that day. It was like an epiphany. I learned just that she out was of curiosity. When did you meet her? When did you meet her? Just out of curiosity. Uh, Nineteen eighty-eight. Okay. Nineteen eighty-eight. Yeah. Um, so uh, <clears throat> she, she, so she's come to the states. It's nineteen forty-nine. She's at Harvard for a decade, um, and and uh, so the prehistory of Europe. It was a monograph. But it was unusual because she used all primary sources and, and reports, archaeological reports, because she could speak all those languages and read so many languages. Right. Uh, we talked right. about that before. So that's, that made her quite, quite different from so many scholars. Um, then uh, she introduced the Kurgan culture, which, you know, later became her I mean, the, her Kurgan theory is the thing that's being validated now by the DNA research. Right, and, right. The theory itself, you know, she was putting it together in the 1950s. Um, she wrote a book, a whole book, uh, Ancient Symbolism in Lithuanian Folk Art, recognizing symbols from ancient times. And she said then in that book, I don't have a date for that book, but it's in the 50s, um, she, she said they had a well-ordered system, cohesive and persistent. So, you know, that became her, that became her remarkable uh, body of work. Right. Is, is sort of explicating that well-ordered system. Now, yeah. at, that, at that point, Vicki, when she's talking about the well-ordered system, I'm assuming you mean of the culture, was she, did she uh, at that point already focus on a, a matriarchal aspect to it, or was this, this more of a broad general historical aspect? Had she stumbled on that notion that would become something she'd be, of course, be known for? Well, I'm sure she had seen it. I mean, I'm sure it was obvious. I don't, I haven't read that book. It would be interesting to see it, um, or the monograph that she wrote earlier. Uh, so I don't know that for certain, but I mean, she, you know, she grew up in that context. She may not have even felt the need to name it. Exactly. No, the reason I ask is we've talked before about how she's celebrated and then excoriated and celebrated when she's talking about just culture at large and not gender. And then once she brings in the, the aspect of female centric cultures, that's when it becomes a problem. So I was curious as to whether at that point she'd mentioned anything about it. But like you say, also, it's something she might have just taken for granted anyway. Yeah. Um, she In, in uh, 1956, she gave a talk, a uh, public talk, on the traumatic cultural change at the end of the Chalcolithic, the end of the Copper Age. That's about 5,500 or 5,000 BCE caused by invaders. So she already understood that that was her Kurgan hypothesis. That was where it started. So that's 1956. Yeah, Fascinating. it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and then, um, you know, at some point when Joan was doing this talk, I just, I really, like I say, it was like an epiphany. I thought I, thought I suddenly understood how Maria did what she did and did it in the way that she did with so much confidence and such depth and such breadth. And I, I just, I felt like, oh my gosh, she was an avatar, <laughs> you know, she nice. was, she was born to do what she did in the Tibetan tradition. 
we it's called uh, terma or treasure. It's there's a whole tradition in Tibet called the terma tradition or the treasure tradition, and I and and it's not limited to Tibet, but um, but it's specific to Tibet. You know what I what, mean? What is the word again? Could you spell the word? Vicky? It's T E R M A terma. Oh, great. Okay. And, yes, you know, I've, I've been a Tibetan Buddhist practitioner since 1980, and I, I teach and, uh, and disseminate Dakini practices from Tibetan Buddhism. But I, uh, you know, I just, I hadn't thought about her that way before, but, but she is. She fits the, the categories perfectly. And I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that and talk about that a little more specifically. But, um, for instance, here's here's a quote from The Civilization of the Goddess. Now, she wrote that book at the end of her life. It came out, I think, in 1991, and uh, she died in 1994. Um, and, and in that book, it, that's the book I talk about where she so explicitly talks about the archaeology that showed her that there were invasions and how they came in and how they disrupted uh, and decimated the old European cultures and how the kind of people's movements uh, became uh, hybridized cultures, you know, so that one culture would get moved out, the ones who fled from the invasions, and then they would kind of morph into a new hybridized culture somewhere else. Right. And, and right. she tracks those movements very specifically in in the civilization of the goddess. Whereas in her earlier work, the language of the goddess, she was really uh, breaking down the symbol system found in the in the script that was uh, you know painted onto the bodies, the figurines, the bodies of women and and uh, on the pottery and all of that. Um, so this was a later book, and it was more comprehensive, I would say. And it especially really um, documented all of the ways that she uh, put together her Kurgan theory uh, in, uh, with evidence, with, with hard evidence. And so she says in that book, we must refocus our collective memory. The necessity of this has never been greater. Now, this is 1991. Look where we are today. Um, she says that the necessity for this has never been greater as we discover that the path of so-called progress is extinguishing the very conditions of life on Earth. Wow. Now, that is, that is a visionary warning from someone who has seen it. And understood, yes. you know, and someone who has an alliance or an allegiance to Mother Earth. And yes. so that, that's, I mean, that is the kind of person she was. But uh, it, I just, I felt somehow as Joan elaborated on her life conditions and her cultural background and the whole formation of her character, you know, I just, I began to, to realize, oh, I'm seeing uh, a terma finder here. I'm seeing uh, a tertan, they're called in Tibet, uh, a person who was born into this lifetime to do this special piece of work that's a part of something ancient and that has been hidden, and she's revealing it. That's what tertans do. They find the treasure uh, and they reveal it. And as I say, I'll come back to that. So so what Joan said toward the end of her talk is she, she said Maria was always looking for continuity and patterns. And, and Joan talked about the joy of being in her field, in her sphere, and in her vitality, you know, just the way it was to be around her. And she, uh, she herself, Maria called herself a ragana, that's an Eastern European uh, word for the uh, for the forest women, and and uh, so she was a seer. She called herself that. And R R A G A N A Ragana. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and uh, and and Maria talks a lot about uh, in her last her very last book that was actually completed, edited and completed by uh, Miriam Robbins Dexter, 
who was her student, her dissertation student. Um, Miriam finished that book, and, and the last part of the book was all her notes on the raganas and all of the, you know, the forest sprites and the goddesses and all, all of the, really, the Eastern European, what we used to call Eastern European uh, folklore, uh, goddess folklore. Um, so she's, Joan said, and this is part of what really moved me, Joan said, she opened my capacity to see. You know, that's what visionaries do. And, yes. uh, and, she also, yes. and she also called herself Amber Woman, which I thought was wonderful. She always gave away Amber to all of us. I have two necklaces. And she said as a child, she always went down to the shore of the Baltic, you know, and, and uh, picked it up. <laughs> they all did. All the kids did. And then, uh, and then she was talking about, Joan was talking about Maria's funeral ceremonies. And uh, they were in a, a cathedral in Vilnius, uh, and it was her ashes were taken there. And, uh, and in the middle of the ceremony, a white dove flew in. Wow. And she, she was buried. Her ashes were in an owl urn in the shape of one of the, uh, one of the relics, you know, from the old European culture. Right, right. So, uh, you know, at that point, I was just totally thinking about the Tibetan Dakinis and the whole tradition, and I just was seeing her, uh, not in a, in a Tibetan way, but in this larger sense of a visionary, an avatar, someone born. The, the Dakini tradition says that Dakinis can, besides being goddesses, Dakinis can take birth or take incarnation as human women. And not all women are Dakinis. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean that any woman could be. So this is way outside of the Tibetan tradition. You know, if we think about a Dakini is, is, incarnates as a woman in order to alleviate suffering in order to alleviate suffering. So, uh, Vicki, could you just explain a little bit more for, for those who aren't as familiar, and I'm one of those, aren't as familiar with <laughs> these traditions, what a daikini is? Like, could you say a little bit more about it? Is it, and just, I uh, guess it jumps out to me, is, is a daikini only a female tradition or a female spirit? But just Absolutely. if you could say more, please. It's uh, well, that. Thank you, Sean. That's one of the most interesting things about the Dakini, the word itself and the tradition in Tibet. Dakinis are gendered. They are only female. Now, the word bodhisattva could be used uh, to, uh, to express a lot of the same qualities. Bodhisattvas are born uh, to alleviate suffering and to help, you know, to help with whatever the problems are, to to help all beings be free and so on. But in a, sm in a more precise sense, the Dakini is a woman who flies through space, a woman who moves through space. And so the, the Dakini, the word Dakini is actually Sanskrit, but the Tibetan correlate, the Tibetan word for Dakini is Khandro, K-H-A-N-D-R-O. And sometimes the, the female terma finders are called chondroma. And the, but the thing about the dakini is that there's no, it, like uh, the word dakini in Sanskrit has a, has a counterpart, a male counterpart called daka. And, and in India, they talk about the dakas and dakinis. They're, they're uh, you know, they're, they're, part of the Kali religion. But mm. in Tibet, it's not like that. The Dakinis are female. And they're honored in mandala structures of meditation, just the way Buddhas are. Um, so the thing I wanted to talk about in terms of, I mean, the, the Dakini tradition is just rich, and the Dakini practices are thrilling. I, I, I was first given my Dakini, my first Dakini practice in 1995 by Sultra Malioni, who's a Western woman who uh, became a Buddhist very early in her life and um, finally has been uh, enthroned as a Lama 
and so now she's Lama, Lama Sultram. Uh, but uh, anyway, she's she's a Western woman. She has a strong feminist background, and and she's my age, and she was part of our women's spirituality uh, larger community in the in the eighties. Anyway, I started to practice in really seriously when I moved out of Berkeley and went to the mountains in Santa Cruz and uh, put myself on retreat for a few years. Um, and, and it was then that I really dug deep into the practices because I needed them. And, uh, and they turned out to be really fruitful and very important for me. And I still do them and I have adapted Dakini practices for my students. They come from all over to, to my private tutorials to learn my form of uh, the Dakini mandala process. So I think that's probably enough about that, right? <laughs> that, that's wonderful. Yes. That helps yes. Us. That's a snapshot. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so what I'd like to say I'd like to actually um, quote a little from an article on the, the treasure tradition because I think it's really meaningful. And I, I have actually put myself in that tradition for decades now as I came to understand that the way, uh, the, way the Motherpiece Tarot unfolded for me and Karen Vogel, what is I now understand it to be classic uh, in the Terma uh, tradition, but I didn't know that at the time. Um, but I wrote all about it in uh, Shakti Woman in 1991. So fortunately, I sort of, you know, documented my process before I understood <laughs> what it was. And now I, I feel um, empowered to put myself in the treasure tradition. And so I really know what I'm talking about here, and I want to talk about it in regard to Maria. Nice, nice. And Let's the, do it. Yeah, the scholar I'm, I'm using a little piece from, there are lots of books coming out in the last two decades on the treasure tradition. So there's finally enough information that, uh, in English, you know, that we can start to understand it. Uh, but this is a particular chapter in a book on the treasure tradition uh, by Holly Gailey. Just want to give her credit. Um, so she she describes, she says, in a mode of revelation particular to Tibetan and Himalayan regions, traces of the past are reportedly embedded in the landscape as terma or treasures hidden away for future generations. So one of the things about the treasure tradition is that there are two types of treasure. One, uh, what, one is called earth treasures, and those are the actual physical or material relics and things that sometimes uh, really famous lamas, you know, pull something out of a, a granite wall. They'll pull a Tibetan bell out of a granite wall or something like that. And those are the earth treasures. So when I first learned about the mummies in China, for example, it was uh, right around the right around 2000, I learned about the mummies or maybe a little earlier. And um, I thought right away, oh, this is Terma, because the the unearthing of those mummies, those uh, Caucasian mummies in China, in the Tarim Basin, really in Tibet, uh, was was such uh, an indisputable uh, discovery? Oh, sorry, such a such a discovery. Uh, nobody had had known, you know, that there was anything like that. That it was even possible. Archaeology had been telling us forever that there was no travel like that. That they couldn't have gone that far in two thousand right. BCE, but they did, and the mummies proved it. So I felt like that was a that was a treasure. And then, uh, and then Maria and her work, same thing, you know. What was the most profound discovery in Maria's whole body of work? The figurines, the female figurines. They're still disputed. They're still contested more than ever. You know, we did that segment on the war against the goddess. They're really, right. they're really uh, burrowing down into the figurines and trying to turn them into something else. 
But right. actually what they were are these sacred objects that she recognized and and that they were intended in some way as a sacred um, expression. And she, Vicky, uh, could you just say a little bit about what we had talked about with the figurines and what the dis- quote-unquote dispute is about them, just for context for the listeners? Well, the dispute is that they're anything but sacred objects. <laughs> you know, they're so threatened. The archaeology establishment is so threatened by her work. And now, see, I'm, I'm really under, maybe this will start to sound like a conspiracy theory. I hope not. Um, but I, I really am. We under- like conspiracy theories, feminist no, conspiracy theories here. So go ahead. <laughs> um, you know, the, the figurines, the, the craft, the, the incredible uh, excellence of the creation of those figurines was recognized immediately, certainly by Maria and afterwards by anybody who came into contact with her work, the sacredness of it. She contextualized it for us. But but in a way, it wouldn't even be necessary if we just used our eyes, you know, because the the figurines have what the what the Terma tradition calls a charisma that has materialized. Mm. Okay. And that it it transmits on its own. And so Maria really brought that to life. You know, it wasn't that other people hadn't seen the old European material. They they had. It was in the archaeology. But they, they, uh, you know, they, they, I don't know if they ignored it, but it was, it was not seen in the way that she saw it. And, um, and one of the things about a terma finder is that they're they're born into a particular time and place with a particular message um, for a particular constituency. And that constituency sort of they receive and and support the the terton, the terma finder, the chondroma in this case. Um, in the in this text, Holly Gailey says. The, they're sacred objects intended for the people of, a, of particular times and places. And the thing that I've always found interesting about it is they, they say right in the tradition, you know, that it's, uh, it's the thing itself, whether it's an earth treasure, like I'm talking about right now, the figurines, or a mind treasure, the understanding that Maria gained and was able to uh, condense and express over the course of her lifetime. That was a mind treasure. And the mind treasures, they say, are given by the Dakinis, that they sort of whisper it in your ear, you know, or give it to you in, in a script. And it's really interesting that Maria spent half her life dealing with the script in, right. in the old right. culture, you know, that nobody yeah. can read. And when you have a, a vision uh, in the Terma tradition, uh, part of the vision is given to you in Dakini script. And so anyway, it's just all very uh, synchronistic. Yes. So yeah. she, uh, this woman, uh, this scholar says, as charismatic figures, tertons have served as the focal point of large-scale public rituals to disseminate their treasures, and their literary, literary production became the basis of new ritual systems. Well, think about it. After Maria's work came out, I mean, we were already in the process of creating a goddess movement and didn't even know it in the 70s. But by the 80s, we knew it. And it was happening as a public, uh, public rituals. And, uh, and, and we were all congealing around the work of Gimbutas, which wow. is one of the things that bugs the archaeologists so much. Right, right. That she seems to have this this special power over people that, yes. a, and you know, they they consider it to be you know chicanery or charlat <laughs> a charlatan or something like that. But it's yeah. just it's just understanding the larger picture, and as you said, contextualizing what yeah. we're looking at. Yeah, and also documenting what we were already seeing with our own eyes. You know what was happening in the seventies 
was not just like me and Karen doing what we did with the mother piece, which was one piece of it, but there, there, was, uh, there was a book by an artist, a performing artist. Uh, oh gosh, I don't have it in front of me, but it was, she had started to do performances with her body, her naked body. And, and she had then started to discover some of the ancient figurines and uh, earthworks and things like that. And, and a lot of artists in the 70s were probably, you could call us visionaries. We were having visionary experiences and remembering the old uh, matriarchy, but not even knowing that we were doing that, you know. I don't know if that makes sense. I know this is way out there, but this no, is... No, no, it makes... A, actually, Vicki, it makes a lot of sense. I have experienced myself interacting with people, uh, with women who pick up on these different things about... They'll say something to me about what they'd like to do now without really knowing the context of ancient history. And I'll go, well, you know, that's interesting because in earlier cultures, that is a very exact thing that yeah. was done by women in those cultures. I've seen it a number of times. Yeah, it's so true. I see it. And in our culture, you know, women's ways of knowing are so devalued. Um, yeah. And so, in fact, one of the big, uh, one of the really mean things they say to said to Maria when she was alive and that they say about her now is that she was intuitive. She was just using her intuition. You know, you can't do that in scholarship. So visionaries. And, and yet, yeah. And yet intuitive leaps are celebrated. Yeah, when it's a great man. <laughs> when it's a great man. Well, yeah. exactly. I think we all know the, <laughs> the, the rightness moment. and certainty of that kind yeah. of thing. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The eureka moment is celebrated when a man has it, but, yeah. Uh, but yeah, when but a woman has it, it. She's just yeah. a woman, you know? She's yeah, just, she's, yeah. She's, just, she's being emotional and trying yeah, to. That's you know, right. to that's yeah, that's right. Yeah. So um, another, uh, another little piece of this is... Uh, Okay, this scholar says the past continues to have an enduring presence that can be evoked in rituals, experienced in visions, embodied in reincarnations, and materialized in tangible form as texts, as images, and relics revealed as treasures. And she says that basically what termifinders or tertons are doing is they are claiming ontological access to the past. And that is so interesting because her critics accused her of thinking that she could see things in the in the old European uh, ruins and relics and so on that other people couldn't. And in fact, I think that is actually one of the characteristics of a of a chondroma of a tertan. Um, there is the the they talk about the Tertan's special access to the past, and I think of I th it made me think of Mary Daly. Do you know who Mary Daly is, you guys? She was uh, yes, yeah, was, yeah, absolutely, yeah, feminist philosopher. I mean, she was the feminist philosopher of the twentieth century, and uh, you know, it's kind of like uh, one of my favorite quotes of Mary's. Let me find it. I keep it close because I love it so much. Nice. Bailey said in, a, in an interview, there are and will be those who think I have gone overboard. Let them rest assured that this assessment is correct. Probably beyond, <laughs> probably beyond their wildest imagination and that I will continue to do so. I love it. I love and it. Daly, who first said to us, you know, uh, the community of feminist spiritual women way back in the in the 80s, uh, she said that we all we had to do was drop back out of patriarchal space and that we could kind of fall into matriarchal space that was already there. Oh, and I so love she's, that. She's the first one I know to actually use that kind of language and set up that kind of a visualization. And it's basically, amazing. we were all doing that, you know. Right, right. And uh, this, to go back to the treasure tradition, uh, the treasure is understood to be buried not only in the landscape, but also in the mind stream of the Tertan during a former lifetime. 
Wow. And uh, and then uh, and then she talks about the the collaborative nature of some of the treasures. And Maria certainly was one of the most collaborative people I've ever met at her level. You know, she was she she didn't have to open to all of us at all, but she did because she understood our uh, expressions of her work as valid. And, uh, and it was a very interesting, I, I don't know if you could call it a collaboration, but it was certainly a dialogue, uh, which is more than you get from, you know, mostly in archaeology. So isn't it your, as you always point out, isn't that part of a matriarchal tradition? Of, isn't of, that right? Sure, exactly. exactly. So, yeah, and the mutual nurturing. Yeah. You know, yes. the, 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 not only a dialogue, but the dialogue that feeds both people. Yes. And then the synergy that comes out of that. Yes. Yeah. You know, um, so one of the things about treasure and treasure revelation and, you know, this whole tradition and how they write and speak about it um, is that they talk about that it becomes particularly evident during periods of contestation between religious systems or modes of authority. And of course, it was such a rebellious act for so many of us in our lives, you know, not just in our heads, but we left the church and we left our husbands and we, I mean, more than le left our husbands, we left the whole concept of patriarchal marriage. And right. we left the center of the culture, you know, we left uh, the economy to some extent and went our own way. It was really, it was a very vibrant, thriving period in the 70s that allowed for that kind of uh, stepping out or stepping off, from, stepping off the edge, you know, into mm -hmm. something that uh, had more value for us. And and she talks, this, this scholar that I'm uh, quoting, Holly Gailey, she talks about uh, dar a dark period of political fragmentation. She's talking about Tibet, but hello, <laughs> where are we? Um, right. <laughs> yeah. And he's uh, characterizing it, you know, as a renaissance. There was a renaissance in Tibetan culture at the time that the treasure tradition really birthed itself and, and really became disseminated. And, and that renaissance in the culture provides a fresh impetus toward the dissemination of the ideas and the values, you know, that are kind of, I, we've, I've talked about it in my work as a kind of spring, uh, that the goddess is underground, you know, for periods of time, and then she kind of comes up and bubbles up into the culture like a spring from underground. And then, you know, they beat her back and <laughs> she goes underground again and and uh, comes up again later. But all of that belongs to the treasure tradition. Um, Vicki, before I, before I forget, you mentioned uh, the marriage tradition, and uh, I have, and I know Dawn has as well, been rereading your piece on priestess to bride. And just oh, yeah. to throw that out there for people to to look for, because it's a really interesting, it talks about that moving, use, taking this tradition that was of the goddess and how it becomes converted and subverted into something else. But anyway, just for some reason, yes, I wanted that, to make sure to bring that right. up. It'd be fun to do a whole session on that. Um, that that article I wrote was called uh, Priestess to Bride, and it's in a book that Christina Biaggi edited, uh, I think in 2006. Uh, I'm not positive of that, but around that time. Uh, the book is called The... <laughs> the Something of Mars. Oh, dear. Uh, Christina Biaggi is her name? Yes. Can you look it up real quick? I, I'm having a mind blank, you know. It, I have it open right here, Vicki. I think it's called The Rule of Mars. The Rule your, of Mars. And to yeah, say yeah. the subtitle. Can uh, you let's see. see. Yeah. Hold on. On the, the orange, Origins, History, and Impact of Patriarchy. Yeah. So everybody ought to check that book out. The Rule of Mars, Readings on the Origins, History, and Impact of Patriarchy. And Christina's last name is spelled B-I-A-G-G-I. -G -G -I. Yeah. B -I -G. Thank you. Christina was one who accompanied me and Janine Davis-Kimball to Russia in 1997. Oh, wonderful. She was my traveling companion. That was a really wonderful. Made the trip 
twice is wonderful. And uh, another episode we should have. I, I had the pleasure and privilege of meeting Janine Javis Kimball. So I definitely want to talk to you about her too as well. Good. Another yes. Let's, we have to raise up our avatars. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> okay. So uh, let's see. So we're talking about the teratons and the earth treasures, discovery of objects in the landscape, the materiality of treasures. Uh, that's part of what makes them authentic. But as I say, there are also these mind treasures, and that's equally important. Um, mm. Also, one of the most important things I got out of this article is in terms of Maria, is she described the Tertan as a, a ritual virtuoso and charismatic centerpiece for an emerging religious community. I mean, does that not totally sum up what happened for all of us in women's spirituality and goddess spirituality when Maria appeared on wow. the scene? It was, wow. perfect. you know, we, we coalesced around her and her work. And she never uh, took herself as, a, you know, as an avatar, the way I'm putting it out. But that's part of the humility of the Terma finder is right. the and this the it's almost something that you can only see in retrospect. Maybe so. Uh huh. Yeah. Maybe so. And uh, this scholar also says uh, she's talking about the whole of the landscape uh, being depicted as saturated with blessings. I guess this yes. is from the Tibetan tradition that's saturated with blessings, which nonetheless remain latent and require activation by tertons. It made me think of Maria telling the story that she's told about being on a dig and seeing a, a male archaeologist toss one of the female figurines, you know, just toss it away like garbage. Right, right. And so, you know, it, you're talking about one person is able to see and another person is not. And right. And then her whole work came out of that uh, that insight of hers, that ability to to see. Um, let's see. Such objects are not merely artifacts of bygone times, but a means to access in the present the continuing vitality of the past in material form. And, you know, that's what happened to all of us visually and tactilely as we were introduced to the female figurines and the pottery and all of that. It was so impactful because it kind of awakened in us some what Mary Daly called our, our matriarchal memory. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Specific types of treasures, she says, are... This is Holly Gailey again. She says are deemed so potent that they are said to liberate through direct contact via the senses. That's what happened. That's what created a goddess movement. We were looking at ancient art. Karen and I spent hours and hours in the Stanford Art Library just finding more and more uh, relics from the prehistoric past showing all these female images from all these different places. I think too, Vicki, that's probably what is so frightening to those who do not like the, these things being uncovered. You, they can sense, I think, and I, I genuinely believe this, the power and pot the potency of these different things, these images, these concepts, the stuff coming up, and they realize that it's a threat to, frankly, an illusion that they weaved over the way the world is. So I think yeah, that's why there's such a pushback. We've always kind of known it was a religious pushback, you know, that they're freaked out yeah. by this female religion. And, uh, and, and here we are absolutely ecstatic in the face right. and, and having awakening experiences that are dramatic and uh, pushing forth from us, you know, in the way of all of our different careers that manifested during that time. Um, she, this uh, Holly Gailey says, uh, the Terma finders are credited with the power to liberate through senses, through seeing, sorry, liberate through seeing. 
Oh, that's, that's wonderful. So important. Isn't it beautiful? Yeah, yeah, that's really wonderful. And then one of the and things you focused on. Be- oh, oh sorry, go ahead. No, you go I ahead. was going to say it was, uh, it, it just brings me back to a conversation we had, and I can't remember if it was off or on air, uh-huh. but um, talking about how when you're in the museums, and uh-huh. you're and you're looking at these figures. Don't read the cards in <laughs> right. the museum. You know that explain what they're supposed to be, but yes. just look at them and have the experience of feeling what they evoke in you. Yeah, just by themselves. You know, and it, that is that power of awakening by seeing. Yeah, being liberated through by seeing. It's amazing. Yeah, and yeah. then. Uh, uh, Yaley also points to the fact that the termas are often brought forth for the benefit of future generations in degenerate times, which is certainly our time. Right. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Isn't it beautiful language? I've I've always loved Tibetan Buddhism for its incredibly beautiful language. It's so poetic or so lyrical the way that it puts its... uh, amazing uh, intellectual ideas into a form that's so beautiful. It's evocative. Yeah, very evocative. Vicky, did you ever talk to Maria about the, these concepts, like the Dakini concepts? Like what was her thought on, on you know, that? Or is this something that developed later? I, yeah, I didn't. I mean, I, I had certain experiences with the Dakini in Tibetan Buddhism, my own visionary experiences earlier, um, but I wasn't given the, I didn't know any particular or precise Dakini practices until 1995 and Maria died in 1994. So that right. was definitely not a part of our conversation. Uh, she, she understood and appreciated very much my, um, my energetic healing and my, my status as a healer and the, you know, how we called in the invisible to the physical, right. she right. she was very hip to that, and and that was a part of our conversation. But uh, no, the Dakinis didn't come to me uh, in a you know in that explicit form until the late nineties. Mm-hmm. Wow! So you had this this wonderful epiphany in the opening address of this uh, this conference. Were there other experiences during the, the conference that, that uh, echoed the, the epiphany or? Well, I'm, elaborated I'm, it, you might say. <laughs> yeah, elaborated it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because, because it was like old home week for me, you know. It nice. was so many uh, participants in the conference were old friends of mine and old colleagues and people that I've been connected with for decades uh, in the in the women uh, women's spirituality work and the goddess work, uh, even even the pagan work. I mean, here I'll just name some of the women who who presented: uh, Ruth Barrett, uh, Carol Christ, Max Dashu, uh, Christina Biaggi, uh, Star Goody. You've had her on the air. Yes, absolutely. And we've had Max too. And that's Max as right. well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and uh, yeah. And so let's see who else. Uh, Mary Mackey, we've talked about getting her on the program. Right, yes. Joan Marler, of course. Right. Uh, some Native American women who were just brilliant. Um, let's see. Donna Reed. You know, Donna Reed and Starhawk made the movie about Maria called Signs Out of Time. That's right. so beautiful. You can probably, I think you can access that online now. Um, Sid Rieger, she's the uh, one of the heads of the ASWIM uh, right. conference and all that. Uh, Miriam Robbins-Dexter, my friend and colleague. Uh, Charlene Spretnak, brilliant mind. Starhawk. Uh, <coughs> da- uh, Heide Guttner-Avendroth. She was there as well. Oh, my goodness. I mean, it was all online, you understand. Right, right, yeah. You know, some sort of a platform. But um, it was just so, there were visual artists and writers and choreographers and authors, singers and songwriters and musicians. You know, it was just Mm -hmm. really, it was amazing. It was fun. 
and and the the quality of the programs was excellent. <coughs> Katie Hoffman presented her aunt Lydia Rules goddess banners, and you know it was just it was a great experience. Wonderful. So I do hope that they find some form for people to uh, access the recordings who didn't sign up for them in the beginning. Yes, yes, I would love to. I would love to be able to do that. That would be amazing. Well, it's, uh, just in terms of time, it's probably a good good spot to break. So we can, there's a lot of these topics that in the coming weeks we're going to be exploring with you, of course, Vicki. And um, what would, just as a jumping off point for the future, uh, what would be something you'd want to leave the listeners with about your experience at the conference and maybe something they can explore and open up and follow on on their own? Well, I guess I could, you know, I ran a panel uh, on um, friends of Maria and and some of these women were on that panel and they gave their uh, impressions and told stories. But really, kind of had to be there. So I I think maybe we've covered it. Uh, And maybe they can also just look up some of these women, the work of some of these women that you've mentioned, just mentioned. So that might be good. Yes, and and enjoy enjoy sort of experiencing this flowering that uh, that Maria inspired. Yes, exactly. All right, then this is uh, this. It's always it's always enriching, Vicky, when you're on. So. Thank, thank you. you. Let's thank Vicki Noble for joining us. <laughs> Always wonderful to yeah. to have you on the and to to get to hear the wealth of information and um, just the amazing way that you have of of uh, of of passing along this this wisdom and this information. It's just wonderful. Oh, thank you, Don. <clears throat> thank you both, Don and Sean. I love you guys. This is really, this is this itself is a treasure in my life. Oh, wonderful. Oh, I'm so glad so to much. hear that. And Don, thank you. And thank you always for taking the journey. And... Absolutely. Thank you for manifesting. <laughs> and and then, uh, we'll thanks be back. To our, yeah, absolutely. Thanks to our audience for listening. And we'll be back with more. This is the 34th Circe Salon, Make Matriarchy Great Again. We've been talking about Maria Gambutas and the symposium. Thank you all for listening. Take care, everyone, and blessed be. Blessed be.